Oh yes, this is the Hardcore Marketing Show. I'm Casey Cheshire, your host for this epic journey. Today's show is sponsored by Ringmaster on a mission to launch B2B podcasts that create relationships, generate revenue, and drive growth. Ringmasterlive.com. Bam. Oh yeah, here we are. Listen, put that coffee down. Coffee is for closers. And I have one on the line right now. Your guest today, I can't wait to introduce you to her. She is so badass. She is an entrepreneur, a leader, a fixer, and yes, a closer, unrivaled master of sales, a chief fractional sales officer for several organizations, founder and fractional chief sales officer at Lodestar, URY, Valerie Cobb. Welcome to the show. Hi. I'm glad to be here. Wow, I am that bad. <laughs> yeah, you, you are that badass. So here we are. You are you have so much experience in the sales side of things and also interacting with us goofy marketers, sometimes doing the right thing, sometimes doing the wrong thing. I can't wait to pick your brain, learn more about sales and how we can work together to just drive revenue. So with that, I need to pass you this thing. It's heavy, but I know you work out. Here we go. All right, here's Thor's hammer. Go ahead, grab that. (laughs) Grab the hammer. You got it? Oh, look at that. Okay. Yes. (laughs) Take Thor's hammer and smash for me some kind of myth, (laughs) bogus strategy, misconception. Set the record straight once and for all. Okay. So once and for all, sales as a profession is a noble profession, not a sucky profession at the bottom of the rock. So I, I totally smashed that. Yeah, I drop, I drop, hammer drop. Yeah, sales is a noble profession. Why? Why does it get? Why does it get shit on so much? Why? <laughs> why? Why do people not always? Why do not we think that way? Well, um, I think it starts with the actual salesperson themselves. Did you know? There's um, actually recently I met Catherine Brand and she wrote. Um, um, how good humans sell. It's a book out there and it's, it's actually very short and, um, to the point, very one-on-one. And one of the things she took a poll. And so there's a list, there's a list of professions and doctors being at the top. Right. And she had salespeople themselves actually rank their, them on their, on the, on that list. Right. Guess where they rank themselves. No, as last. Thank you. (laughs) Come on, last. And why is why are doctors first? I mean, when was the last time your doctor really followed up with you and actually talked to you kindly or whatever? Or was on time? Literally had an appointment this morning (laughs) from one of my kids. It was a telehealth thing, but either way, it's supposed to be like at nine nine (laughs) thirty. The nurse is calling, saying, "Are you guys ready for the telehealth connection?" Like. We've been wait. We've been ready for like, yeah. You go to the office and they're an out. So so they do all these goofy things. Yet they're the doctors and they get this credit. And meanwhile, sales themselves are even ranking themselves low. Why are they doing this? Well, I think it also stems a little bit, Casey, from um, what people see as a definition for sales. So I'm going to throw a question back at you. What's the definition of selling? (laughs) Definition (laughs) of selling. Uh, getting someone to agree to buy your product or service. 
I, that's one. How yeah. that? A, yeah. What? What is? What do, what do you? What do you do with your kids when they don't want to do something? I yell at them until they do it. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> And it's something, and that gives the trying to encourage them, right? <laughs> Try to like encourage them or um, help them see the the light. Like, hey, don't be so mean to your friends. Be a good, you know, like be a good person. Don't, yeah, or don't do that on the playground. Or try this. Yeah, exactly. So you have years of experience, and if you you have two kids, right? I, yeah, I can't remember what you said. Yeah. yeah, two kids. So you have two kids, and. So do you let them run out into the street when they're two years old? Well, hell no. That was the one time we <laughs> yelled at them. We were like, look, we had to yell at you a super lot because we wanted to set this in your brain. You cannot go in the street. No, no. Okay. So what are you doing in that we, moment? We are <laughs> molding the young minds. We are. <laughs> I don't know. I don't even know what I'm doing. I'm just trying to be a good parent, I guess. You're trying to be a good parent, but you're trying to use your knowledge of yep. something to protect your kids. Yeah. Right? Yeah, totally. Now, do your kids always accept that? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so let's define what selling actually is and who actually sells. So who actually sells? Let's do that one first. Uh, I'm going to go and say everybody. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much that simple, right? Okay. All right. So with Catherine Brown's title, How Good Humans Settle, you know, are, are, are we really actually trying to protect certain things? Are we trying to help? Mm -hmm. That's the question. Right. So are we trying to help? Yeah. Are we trying to help? So when it starts with sales team members that put themselves at the bottom of the rung, I would say that it's close to... I'm going to say it's close to at least 50% shouldn't be in the sales percent per <laughs> profession. Yes, one in every jo eight jobs are sales jobs. So that's a huge part of the problem. They think they're the bottom of the run, right? <laughs> and on top of that, they think they're the bottom of the run. And why? Because they spit out feature benefit vomit, right? I love the, the, the whole thought of Man, Yeah, yeah. Kind of trick. I just, I, well, trick you, but it's like, Cajole. here's, it, it's definitely not Simon Sinek's golden why. It's not yeah. why we do these things. First, it's here's, here's this thing and I want you to buy it. And it's like, yeah. I don't want to yeah. buy that one, you know, but then we have to also talk a little bit about why do people buy it? And I always trip people up on this and I can't, I wish I could take credit for making it up, but one of my mentors actually said it and stumped my entire sales team when he asked this question, why do people buy? Why do people buy? People buy uh, to avoid pain, perhaps? Possibly. That's one reason. Because it looks tasty. <laughs> <laughs> That's another reason. Man, that, I was in a bakery and you know, they put fresh <laughs> things with a... The stuff on, it's just like, oh my gosh. Oh man, that sounds so good right now too because it's almost lunchtime. It sells itself. <laughs> it does. <laughs> or when you walk into a movie theater and you don't like popcorn, but you smell the popcorn and you're like, yeah, I'm going to pay $10 for that bucket that really cost them only 25 cents, right? <laughs> right, or like $7 for junior mints. You're like, what did I just do? What did I just do? And I just did it. So 
I, I'll answer that question in just a second. So on Facebook, uh, not Facebook, on, uh, we all know that Facebook has their big name change, right? The big oh brand God. change and every, yeah, exactly. Everybody's going like that. So one of the guys that I'm connected with on LinkedIn, he sent out a poll and it was one of the most witty polls that I've, I've seen in a long time because then we get pulled to death and we never pay attention. Right. It's true. And I totally got caught in that whole thing. And so I thought, okay, I want to see the answer to this poll. And he says, do you care that Facebook changed their name? And there was two, two, you had two responses. That was it. First response is, no, I don't care. You want to guess what the second response was? Um, they changed their name? Like, <laughs> no, they're like, yes, I can. No, it literally was, no, I don't care, twice. Yet people answered the second one at 37%. And then the first answer was, no, I don't care. So they were both, no, I don't care. Oh, right. Oh, and it just totally made me laugh. Because I love that. Like, I, yeah. Who, and they were like, who had that poll? Oh, gosh. You're going to ask me that question. Okay. Well, we'll have to give him a shout out or her shout out later. Yeah. That's a baller move. It was. Everyone mindlessly clicking on LinkedIn. But what it did is it showed that statistics will prove something and, and provide some proof, but it's not the reason people buy. Because that was one of the most perfect dem demonstrations of literally innumeracy with statistics, right? right. <laughs> people went through and they chose the exact same thing and thought they were cho choosing something else. So they're really not paying much attention, you know? And, and a lot of times, It'll be like, well, this group of 2,000 students said that salaries were like seventh on the list of reasons why they actually do it. And I was like, okay, I want to know their personalities. <laughs> I want to know more about that group to say, is this just, you know, they're just saying that to make sure that it's altruistic. I don't really care about money, you know? Well, have a few kids and come back to me and talk to me a little bit about whether salary really makes sense. So going back to answer that question, people buy only for their reasons. And I'm going to tell you right now, that stumps everybody, right? Marketers, what do you guys do? You have to market to their reasons, right? I mean, honestly. Right. And that's what makes your job so dang hard, Casey. It's like. Seriously, how do you how do you do this? Well, we got to figure uh, out the reasons first. You got to figure out the reasons first. And the problem with feature benefit vomit is it it's just not listening. They're not listening to anything. So they get a bad rap. So you got 50% of the people that shouldn't be in sale at least. <laughs> and they're one in eight jobs in the United States, right? Yeah. So no wonder it gets a bad rap. They don't even believe in their story. <laughs> And they no. don't listen to anybody and they don't feel anything. And all marketers know, really, people buy on emotion. At the end of the day, statistically, people buy on emotion. You saw that eclair. So you needed that eclair. It wasn't because one in 10 eclairs make, you know. See, I, I saw a Danish, but you saw an eclair. So I saw an eclair. Google that. See, I said Danish and everyone pictured their own. Oh, I see that. Yeah, that looks tasty too. Um, no, mine was one of those, like those little squares, you know, oh. with like the cheese Danish or but it had like raspberry instead. It was like oh. that fresh kind. So it was like, it was sitting there as like some oh. farmer just 
made it happen. Oh, well, you know, and that has <laughs> blew my diet all hollow. So anyway, I know, right? now I got to go out and get myself a Danish. But <laughs> at the end of the day, eclairs or what is it? Uh, I, I can't remember what they're called, but they're the cream filled ones. That's when I will. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like the puffs or the yeah, cream puffs. puffs. But yeah. if you go to a donut shop, what's it? Krispy Kremes. Oh. And it's that Boston cream one. Oh, oh, the Boston cream donuts. Yeah, yeah. My my kids used to, they say I don't eat enough. So they used to put a dish out and they're like, here's a Boston cream. <laughs> wow. I mean, that's like an actual meal. Like you had one of those donuts? That That's yeah, like, for the day. <laughs> yeah, well, in lunch too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So it starts obviously with the attitude, but there's also, I guess the other problem with it is honestly, historically people have seen that as the used car salesman. So yeah, let me ask you a question. Somebody literally calls you up and says, buy a car. Yes. No. Yes or no. No. Yeah. No. I like my car. Yeah. Okay. But we give used car salesmen a bad rap. Yet we walked onto their lot, just like we walk into Walmart to buy something and ask somebody, of course, why are you at a used car lot? Mm. You're there to buy. Buy You're there to look. And it's like, and so you get these guys that start, once again, part of the bad rap is they start talking about the features of the car. They start talking about all these things. They don't talk. They don't listen. So that's the bad rap, you know? And, uh, and it's a problem for sure. So, yeah, like how do you measure the fact that I, I I like to drive Jeeps because of the Jeep wave? You know, like how do you measure? You can't. You can't measure you that. You can't. And, and the fact that this one's red, um, <laughs> he likes red. red, and people wave at me. I've never had a red car before, and now it's a Jeep and it's red, and people <laughs> wave at me everywhere I go. Like that's yeah, it doesn't matter the air conditioning thing in there kind of seats they are oh they're heated seats okay that's cool i mean i appreciate that now in the winter time but you're right it's it's that emotions first emotions first everybody buys because of their reasons and and the the other challenge is they mix up a lot of times price and value Hmm. because the price literally indicates the value so you get you know, you get a lot of people pull the trigger on price really fast. A lot of sales, they pull the price thing before there's been any kind of establishment of value. The reality is if you're doing sales well, you don't really ever have to ask to close a deal. Mm, right. You don't. And good human sampling <laughs> should not feel like it's a pushy thing. You know, if you really honestly care about your kids like that, you're going to come up with reasons why they should not do these things. And it helps with the minutia. I was, I was watching a podcast that you were on for somebody else. And I was, yeah, it was very exciting. (laughs) Those are my favorite podcasts is the ones I'm on. (laughs) The ones you're on. (laughs) And you guys are talking about the minutia of digital stuff. There's so much of it out there. And who helps you get through that? Who helps you identify that? That that's always been a question that I've wondered 
And, you know, I am, I'm a solopreneur right now, right? And one of the things that I love the most is if somebody very good at their craft sells me on that so that I can sift through the minutia of craft, right? Because there's so much of it out there. And, you know, and I struggle. I only have so many hours in the day and I don't know what the best platform is. And you can go on, you can go online and completely lie. I, I love this. Even on LinkedIn, you can buy sources that will literally like you on LinkedIn, you know, or boost your, boost your stuff. So you kind of, and, and as a principal, I find it, I'm like, no, I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Right. Then we, we could buy some YouTube views on this video. You know? Yes, you can. And I refuse to do it. And it's like, okay, so if I only have a couple of people end up following it, oh, oh, well, you know, but how do I sift through all that, you know, paid ad or at the very top, you know, which one's really the best? Usually it's like on page three, <laughs> not, not, on, not on page one. And, and then you're kind of going, well, I don't know, even trying to get a camera for doing a podcast, right? Or a microphone. I had to ask you, I'm like, what do you use? Because I don't have time to sift through all that stuff, right? Yeah. And so sales as a profession should be helping, period. Even if you don't sell them anything. And I'll, I'll give you a, a story. When I was young in selling, I was selling what I called an unsellable product because it, it didn't look cutting edge. It was oh. very difficult to get past the cutting edge portion of it. and gosh, it was crazy. I was at a trade event and there was a certain feature that this person told me they had to have. And I said, unequivocally, we don't have it. And I walked them down to the competitor and I said, this competitor has this. And introduced him to a rep that I knew that was very spot on, great guy. Everything would help this gentleman out. An hour later, this gentleman comes back and says, hey, I want your software. And I was like, we don't have what you have, you know, and what you need, what you ask for, actually not have, you know. And I think that that's sometimes scary to salespeople to do that because they're afraid that maybe something won't backfill, um, which we can talk a little bit about how to fix some of this in a minute. But the reality is the guy came back and bought anyways, and he finally, he goes, you know what? It's okay. I can work around it. I don't need it that bad. It was a nice to have, and I gave you my list of nice to haves, and I would rather work with you because I know you're willing to walk me down to a competitor, which means you're not lying to me. Yeah. <laughs> Here we go. And it, it's just genuine. You have to be very, very, very genuine. And, uh, you know, anyway, and early on, I learned that from one of the, I had a sales training course that was half a day okay. right out of college, half a day sales training course. And it was with Nordstrom, believe it or not. And Nordstrom really? back in the day was the top dog for nice retail, right? It, it, they were beating everybody out because you could walk in and you could literally take something back that you'd worn for a year and they'd take it back with no, no, you know, and that was always their model. And 
it was a bit like um, Ritz Carlton's model of ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. So you never pulled any punches and you never, and, and they only had their two sales a year. So you knew when you were buying something, everybody else was getting that exact same price. So you could wait till the two sales, you know, actually they had two anniversary and half yearly. So they had three um, because you did it half yearly. Um, and so we sat down and they were just, we had our little books of business and retail and you don't have books of business anymore. I mean, that's like the 1800s, right? You have this book that you write somebody down and then I, and I, and they, they were talking about don't push anything on anybody. Just be there for them. Be kind, you know? And I remember walking a couple of customers to a different department store, you know, on purpose because I, they knew that we would. And, uh, it was kind of that genuine and, you know, good humans, right? Just trying to help. And we'd have people that would walk in. I remember one time a, a person walked in the door and they were wearing, they were filthy. Actually, <laughs> they were just filthy. And all the other girls kind of walked back. And I, I remember thinking, okay, this person needs some help regardless. I don't care what they're doing. And, and we're talking back in the 80s, early 90s, right? And so I walked up to this person and I said, can I help you? You know, I'd love to help you get whatever you, you know, that person dropped a thousand dollars. And it was just because I was being a good human, you know? And so. Wow. You know. I mean, that's that classic story of like everyone judging the, you know, yeah. Later that comes in and. <laughs> Sometimes they're the ones wearing the t-shirt because they don't give a shit, you know. Uh, like, <laughs> exactly. You can't You really can't tell, you know. Then there's the fancy person who drives the, I think there's some video with it, you know, this fancy person in the bar, you know, actually drove like a, like a really cheap car. But then there's this other guy who's just sort of just hanging out, but he owned the bar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he had some exactly. like, really fancy car, but it was like, <laughs> you know, you gotta be careful who, you know. Don't judge too quickly based on that. Yeah, but help everybody. Help everybody. And and so in training reps, I've always said, check your ego and perception at the door. Suspend no until you so actually. Do. How do you balance the, you got you to, gotta, the pressure, the quota, you got to hit it. Some people are dragging their feet. Well, first of all, that's, that's the challenge with culture, period. So if we were going to go to kind of fixing some of this, I would say yeah. that companies need to have a better sales culture. And you're going to go, what? <laughs> First of all, it is an honorable profession. There's only three things at a company. There's three things that are very, they're paramount at companies, right? Okay. And, and you can't say one, you can't have one without the other. So I'm not going to say sales is more important. And if we were going to say if to this, to this, to this, I would tell you if to this, to this, to this, right? But you have finance, you have a revenue teams, and you have operations. You have no operations without revenue teams bringing in something, right? Yeah. And you have no cash flow without it, right? But you right. can't execute on what they're doing without operations, right? right? 
Yeah. And and then if you can't keep the ship going, finance, the CFO arm, that kind of thing, then then you're pretty much done as a company, right? right. So and they're all and I call them a three-legged stool simply because without one, the company topples. For sure. Yeah. And one of the biggest challenges, there's 99, 99% of the United States. And consequently, I just listened to another webinar from the UK because I'm global. And um, I was listening to them and they also said the same thing. 99% of the companies in, in these areas are small businesses. So up to a half, a mil- half up to a half, 500 million, sorry, excuse me. Um, mid-size being more. So I'm going to classify small more at the zero to more 50 million-ish range um, to make that a little more digestible. Sure. But if 99% of those companies are small businesses in the United States and it represents around 31 million companies across the United States, um, yet the Fortune 100 companies make up the GDP. <laughs> So, so something's going wrong at these smaller companies. And so you have a couple of issues with it. You have, first of all, the, the visionary or the president CEO, if they've gotten to that point, that is wearing way too many hats, Mm -hmm. but you also end up having this lack of sales culture. I was at a company and literally the sales team members were looked down upon and you'd have them whining and complaining and moaning. Well, the sales team members get to do this and they never lived a day in the life of the sales team member on the, away from their family two weeks of the month because they were traveling COVID. It isn't easy. And then on top of that, if they won, people complained because, oh, they must be arrogant. If they didn't win, they complained because they weren't bringing in the dough Mm. (laughs) in order to keep more jobs. And so there's a, a really bad lack of sales culture of saying we're all winning as a team. And yeah, there's that jerk that acts like an idiot. There's always that, but there's that in every, every line, you know, we talked about the doctors with the God complex, you know, they right. do just things, but they got the right. God plan, you know? So you need to start kind of on a sales col- on that sales culture. You've got to be willing to check every ego at the door and say, we've got to be able to remove obstacles so sales can sell, to create more jobs, to then repeat, (laughs) right? And a lot of times we don't. We put sales team members, they've got to also start, they have non-sales activities that they're they're charged to do, right, with Mm -hmm. at these smaller companies. And then, by the way, but call 50,000 people and make sure you follow up on every single lead. And, oh, write that proposal from scratch and don't get any processes in play to do that. But we're going to bring on 10 sales team members and we have no process in play. And somehow or another, they're all supposed to be these little mini entrepreneurs that should get it. Right. (laughs) And then it's like, I can't bring this in. I don't have enough. And then and then they don't have enough time to do that. So then they freak out because they can't hit quota. Then going back to sales culture with quota, why on earth do companies do top-down quota? Hmm. Why? Why? That's I do it. Why shouldn't they? It's simple. It sounds simple, right? To do it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it, 
it should that anybody I have the adage of that which we create we support right okay so if a sales team member helps create their own quota and now I'm not saying carte blanche hey I'm only going to sell a dollar I mean it's a give and take kind of situation right yeah but if they are the ones then why aren't they looking at economic indicators to say, what can my territory do? How can my territory? And that's all in the sales management. So that's, let's, let's fix another part of it, right? So there's six steps that we use at SalesQB, which I'm a licensee of. Um, Fractional Chief Sales does a lot more than just sales management, but the sales management piece, if you're trying to have a small company actually be able to be successful in sales the fortune fortune 100 500 they can afford these massive salaries and sales training and all this wonderful stuff what can you do to improve a sales culture well get the sales process fixed first people come on top of that you got to get the process first right and you and i to ask you even for like the small companies starting from scratch do you start at the sales process is that what what's step number one? Is it process? Absolutely. How do, how on earth do you expect some guy to be able to repeat your vision if you don't even haven't even come up with that strategy or that vision to begin with, right? And then right. they've got to have a kind of a few things in their quiver to be able to even talk to somebody about it. They might be brilliant, but they don't know how to help people if they don't even know what that is that they're helping people with, right? (laughs) And when we talk about sales process, you're also talking about, well, do you have three microscripts? Well, what the heck is a microscript? Well, if I said tissue, what comes to mind? What brand? Kleenex. Kleenex. So you've got to have these really quick little microscripts that they can at least have a 10 second conversation with somebody. And so you have some guy come in and it's like, oh, by the way, we're too busy with operations. You go ahead and figure everything out. You go ahead. <laughs> What's a good example of a microscript? Um, it's just something that is about 10 words or less. And it's kind of like, for me, if someone said, what do you do? Um, well, what, for me, it's almost easier to say, what don't I do? I am not a consultant and I am not, <laughs> I'm not a consultant and I am not selling for you. <laughs> right. I am in there to fix your revenue problems. So now start to think of all those revenue problems. There you go. Okay. What's your revenue problem today, Casey? Right. We no, want to grow. Uh, you want to grow. Okay. We want to grow. Right. We want more customers. Want more customers. So now you start in your mind thinking about what that is versus me having to go down the list on on a microscript. Um, so a good example when you're saying, well, if you're trying to have somebody who you sell, let's use Kleenex again. Yeah. <laughs> you're selling, and one of their one of their good things that they had done is the moisture on their, you know, the actual uh, tissues, right? Yeah, yeah. Because in the winter time, everybody it comes to mind quickly that your nose gets dry. Oh yeah, I get right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's it's a microscript would be saying something like a moisture on a tissue, and it draws a picture really quickly in somebody's mind. You know, 
And I probably should have for this show kind of prepared several of them so that it would be easy. No, no, I, I get it. Though. It's like but. have it's like having having a response ready for for a certain thing, but it's it's thought out. It's not just your yeah. We it's it's trying to get away from we. And I think initially maybe the person first person selling is kind of just trying to figure it out. But as you realize what the right way to answer these things is, you should should turn them into microscripts or turn them into part of your process so that it the same thing is happening every time and you're right maybe you can wing it but your team can't wing it exactly so you're saying turn it into your process yeah yeah i mean some some of it is even just what the heck am i selling <laughs> what in the service industry sometimes you're selling ideas and thoughts and it's very difficult it's a it's very complex for people to understand how to even sell that idea or thought Right. I mean, you think about how many times um, you're trying to convey exactly what it is that you do in a service and be sharp and laser focused. And as a business owner, you probably thought about this quite a bit. Why did you even start the company? Well, I started the company because I saw a need. Right. Right. Somewhere. It wasn't just to do this. It's like, hey, some, there's a gap missing in the industry. And I thought, hey, another person asked me about that same thing. And another person asked me about, you bring in a brand new sales team. They don't know why you built that company. Mm, <laughs> they might buy into it very easily, but they, might, they don't know because you didn't go through that process. So in essence, business owners have gone through the process of new product development and they've already pressure tested everything and they've already overcome all the objections and they know when it's going to be a problem. But you bring on a sales team and it's like, okay, so tell me how you're going to overcome the objection to call centers. Oh, well, what's your customer's objection? So process collects all of those things and says, you know, here's what you do. You go, you start with A, you go to B. You go to see, you follow up. I mean, how many, there's a statistic, Casey, out there that, um, and it's in like 21 things that sales should know, you know, and it's, it's very easy. And they've done, I don't know if it was from salesforce.com or they, anyway, which stat it came from. But I'm going to ask you right now, how many consumers would actually refer business? What percent? Just use a percentage. Percent. Overall, just how many consumers would refer business if asked? Uh, assuming they enjoy the thing or not, like we we can't assume. Yeah, assuming let's let's assume they enjoy. Assuming they're happy, mm -hmm. like a hundred, pretty close. Ninety-nine. Yeah, yeah. In the in the noise, guess how many sales reps actually asked the question? Would you refer? Like 20, 20% or something. Lower? <laughs> Seven? 11. 11. It, so it's 11% of sales reps would, would ask for the referral from yep. a previous customer to, interesting. But why, why don't they? Oh, oh, does this tie back into the whole thing? Like they didn't, they weren't trying to help. So it could tie back into that. Some of them, I've, I've, I've gotten all different answers. Well, they don't want to, they don't want to refer their competitor. 
Because business to business, there's a competitor out there, which is bunk. They actually will get people who actually do that. Yeah. But the reality is they don't. But if you have it set in your process that you say you always ask for referrals, it becomes second nature. Mm. So I coached opera, um, classical music for like 10 years. And until people actually have it become second nature, they do not like a song, an aria or whatever. You can practice an aria for like a year yeah, before they'll actually go on a stage. I have... Uh, in music, we call it a run, but with tons of notes, think tons of notes in a row, you know, yeah. um, sometimes you can practice that same run for six months to, till you get it right. And then you can't, you cannot then just say, I got it right. You have to practice it till you never get it wrong. Right. Okay. So with some sales team members, they don't even realize they should be asking for referrals because it's not even embedded in their process. So if it becomes second nature that they say, how do I do like in a debrief, when you're doing a company debrief, you kind of go, okay, I'm in this company debrief. Um, what did we do right? What did we do wrong? What next time, you know, um, then it becomes second nature, just like NASCAR when they, when they take the, they come around the track, they take all the tires off. They always debrief afterwards because it's got to be faster and faster and fast, faster. So it all starts with process. All starts with process. Man, where, where does this go to? What do, what do you see? What's exciting you about the future? What's coming around the corner that we should pay attention to? <laughs> well, gosh, right now, what's exciting is we have the great resignation, mm. right? And it's shaken up all companies for sure. So it's creating great opportunities for a lot of these small businesses, right? And if I were going to say, um, you got a lot of revenue on the table that can then repeat and create more jobs and growth, um, especially the services industry where you're not really um, tied to the supply chain issues so much anymore, right? If you're in manufacturing, that's a whole nother, we would have to have a whole nother um, discussion on that. And yes, I've been in manufacturing. So um, there's great opportunity right now. So it's exciting. So if people, if, if people really, for sales, it's one of the most lucrative jobs you can ever have without having to have a college education. But it's also one that you can fall flat on your face if you're not able to figure out how to make that process work for you. And companies need to be quite careful on the personalities and personas that they hire because that's one of the highest churn roles as well. You know, now I'm in B2B. <laughs> so when we're talking about B2B, we're not talking about trying to harness sales coming inbound sales. B2C, that's a whole different arena. But as you start to think through what's exciting, what's exciting is small businesses can take advantage of this. Small businesses can set a process in play. Part of the reason I got into the fractional space is because there are, my vision is businesses can change lives faster than government can. Yeah. And you can turn on a dime. And so fractional at the stage of my career, fractional 
means I can go into these smaller companies, set up their process, get them going, get them back on track and grow their companies for the fraction of a cost of if they were trying to hire a Fortune 100 sales role as even just the bare minimum sales manager. It's so much faster too. Oh yeah. They get them, we get them up to speed because they're, you're going to read a book, you're going to watch a podcast, you're going to test things, you're going to try to do all this stuff. And then you have this experience that can come in and say, yeah, here's the process. There's six steps, right? You got to make sure your website's doing pretty good. And I'm laughing because, because I'm a solopreneur and don't need one because I, I max at 10 customers, you know? Right. I, I use LinkedIn. <laughs> right. But if you're really trying to push a product of some sorts, you've got to have, you've got to spend as much on your sales team as you are trying to get a good website going. Mm. So there's a lot of that. So I'm, I'm just curious. There's been so much talk about this. I, you have so much knowledge. Who are you? Who are you? I heard <laughs> opera coach. I, all these things. Can you take me back in time to like little Valerie days? Did you know you're going to be sales coach and sales leader to the stars? Like, what was it like? Where'd you grow up? Oh, goodness. Well, I grew up in Southern California and I had a magical childhood. Um, I have five brothers that are uh, very competitive and, um, and two sisters. So I'm from a very, very large family. And because I'm a middle child, I'm probably very aggressive because those middle children are always that way, right? Fight for um, attention. Yeah. Yeah. I, I honestly, my best friend and I, we were going to be in a rock band. That's, that was our dream. We're going to be a rock band. And wow. <laughs> how I got to classical music is a whole nother story. But um, so growing up, it, you know, my dad did almost everything. We, I'd done an upside down loop in his airplane and we, I, I did Whitney. I, I, um, hiked Mount Whitney when I was about three with a little pack on my back and, and everything. And you're three. Yeah. When I was three. Yeah. When you have a lot of little kids, hiking is a very inexpensive sport, right? So, (laughs) so we did a lot of that. Um, he was an expert marksman. So we all were trained on shooting and doing a bunch of that kind of stuff and safety, gun safety, for sure. He's anal about gun safety. And he felt like if you trained your kids, because his dad, his dad was a Marine. And I hear that that's something that we have in common. Um, His dad was a Marine and he was an expert marksman. He did his thousand um, yard shot without a scope back in you know, a long, long time ago when they didn't really have those. And we have scopes where we take them off for the, for the range. Yeah. And, uh, my dad said he finally got his, but he cheated. He had to have a scope. And so, and my dad always wanted to be a Marine, but he, uh, he ended up in the reserves. And so we always honor, uh, we were taught to honor servicemen and women and make sure that we, stood for them, thanked them anytime they were on an airplane or whatever, because we were, we were dutifully told to do that, you know, and I, and I do honor them. I wouldn't want to be the one out there. So I do honor them. Um, so we all thought 
that I would probably be the least likely to ever be in business when I was a kid um, because I was more the twirler and my <laughs> hair was never done. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, and I, I wanted to be the big bad buyer. That's how we ended up at Nordstrom. I ended up with merchandising degree because I wanted to be this you know, buyer on, you know, New York and Paris and all this kind of fine stuff. And I quickly found that I didn't want to end up being in that because, um, well, they were just not very genuine. I didn't like, I didn't like the industry at all. Um, Do you like the Devil Wears Prada? Is it like similar? It is. It is. I mean, it's like a real, it's like not a fictional movie. It's not fictional at all. No. <laughs> and, and I think it's a very, unhealthy environment um and i didn't want my kids growing up in that kind of environment yeah. and so you know but nordstrom i had to thank them because you know i was top sales all the time and they did have their book of business and they did all the sales training and it and it was really quite good hunting grounds learning to to do those things and then i ended up in construction so um and that growing up riding dirt bikes and doing all of those things. Cause I do, I have a dirt bike out there and it's, uh, it's a Kawasaki. It's a 140. So I told people you were a badass and they, they didn't meet me. <laughs> They're like Casey says nice things about all of his guests, but like literally when I say stuff, it's like, I'm not making it up. Well, that kind of started because my girlfriend and I, she was gorgeous, by the way, I was a stick. She was Marilyn Monroe, you know, just beautiful. And, um, we used to, it, we found very quickly that if you could jump on a motorcycle, you could do jumps, you know, that you'd meet all the guys in the world. <laughs> you would, you would. And it's true. So we would take, we would literally, we had a hitch on our Honda Accord and we would take, uh, uh, we'd put a trailer on and we'd put our dirt bikes on and we'd go out to started Wells Road and we'd go dirt bike riding and everybody's like, well, how'd you get the bikes on? It's like, you had no problem with guys helping us get the bikes back up on the trailers, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, we I mean, Alan help me with this. Uh, it's kind of help. 10 yeah. guys show me. Wow. Yeah. And then I just had a really great, I, I love people. I absolutely love people and I love culture. Uh, when I was 19, and this is back a long time ago, so this is the 80s, first place I wanted to go out of the country was to China. And my mom, there's no cell phones, no nothing. My mom, she let me go. Yeah. And I went to China, Thailand, and Hong Kong for about three weeks when I was 19. And I asked her the other day, how'd you do that? Weren't you scared? Because this is very communist China. Tiananmen Square happened like uh, a geez. couple of years later. Yeah. So well, a couple of years later. Yeah. Holy yeah. Crap. I was still doing, we were, I, they were still doing steam engine trains over there when I went, you know, it's crazy. It was crazy. So, and Schwinn bikes, heavy Schwinn bikes were their traffic jam. So it's totally different than it is today. Wow. And so it's just kind of adventurous and I just love talking to people. And so I ended up in the sales per, per profession because you ended up loving talking to people and helping people. Yeah. And I love seeing them win. I love them. I, I love seeing it solve a really great challenge and they're excited about it. Hell yeah. But now I'm curious, yeah. where, where the hell did the opera singing come from? 
Oh, you know, it was funny. My freshman year in college, I had a friend who said, hey, I'm going to take a voice lesson. And I went, what the heck is a voice lesson? You know, yeah. it's pre-internet, you know? I, and I was like, okay, I am too. <laughs> and I quickly got bored with musical theater and some of the other things because it wasn't as very, it's not very technical. And after a while, I was like, okay, so what's going to engage me? And opera is highly technical, highly technical. Cla classical music is highly technical. It's very, um, it's not something you do a lot of improvisation, you know, with, right? So I ended up just falling in love with it. I remember um, Andrew Lloyd Webber came out with Phantom of the Opera and I was just like, oh, and that, I loved it because I did some reviews, local reviews and things like that and played the part of Christine because I was a coloratura and all that kind of stuff. And I love that and Les Miserables. And, and so um, it kind of started me down a little bit, you know, past some of the Rodgers and Hammerstein kind of musical theater. And then I just got, I just fell in love with Mozart. Ugh. He's so amazed. I, I just, I cannot believe it. Right. So I fell in love with him and his music, you know, what he wrote. And I loved singing Queen of the Night aria, which is one of the highest arias out there, you know, highest soprano. So you took one voice lesson. You were like, Hokey, Oklahoma is not hard enough for me. But then no, no, no. we had some of the Miss come out one. and then you're like, <laughs> still not hard enough. I need to sing the hardest arias out there most complicated ones I can find. Yeah. Well, it, it just, it keeps you engaged. It's a great hobby. It's a, it's a great hobby. It's and a natural skill though. If you took a, that was in college when you took your first lesson. I, yeah. And actually most of the time opera singers really, because of biological things, you don't really want to start training people to sing until they've gone through all the changes from youth to, you know, and settled because then they have to relearn it again. You know, you can put your fingers on a keyboard, but you can't, you can't, and you can touch where a note is, but to figure out in your body what, how to make that work, right. it's just different. But it was, it was good training ground because then um, I did coach it for 10 years and I had a tone deaf student and she taught me, there's two valuable lessons in life that I learned from two voice students. One, um, the one came in, she was tone deaf and she had grit. We, I'd hit the same note over and over again until she tried to match it. And she did that without singing anything because she couldn't sing anything. I want to say four or five months she hung in there before all of a sudden it clicked and she could hear the pitch and match it. She went on to win solo and ensemble and all sorts of things. And it was amazing. And she just stuck it out, stuck it out. The other one I taught her for, she came from another coach and I taught her for six months. Wasn't getting anywhere. She kept telling me, no, 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 that's not it. And that's kind of where I get my title from my book that I, I can't help you that I'm writing. Mm. But anyway, she, um, her mom came to me and I was like, this was one of the first clients I fired actually. <laughs> and I will fire clients if they're yeah, of course. really, if they're really, uh, really jerks anyways and I said she's just not going anywhere and she's like I agree she wants to go back to her other coach so we're going to go back and I said hallelujah uh, but I'll be here when she wants to change and when she wants to listen I will do this <laughs> and anyway so 
six months later, she came back and she was ready to listen. She also went on to win solo and ensemble and several things after that. And it's not that I'm a great coach. It's, it comes down to grit and whether they're willing to change and listen. That's it. You know, and if they're not, then I can't help them. Right. So what about you, Casey? Grit and change and listen. That's, that's amazing. And, and you, you stuck to your guns to say, you, you need these things. Otherwise I can't help you. Like I can do my part, but you need to do your part. Yeah. And it's, it's a little bit the same in sales because if a sales rep goes to a coach, the behaviors, you can coach one-on-one. In fact, in my fractional thing, that's part of the process. They need that one-on-one every single week or every couple, right? Yeah. But training is totally different. I, I outsource training on purpose because it doesn't change their behavior unless they're the ones that actually ask for it. And they're the ones that actually go, I need this. I want to learn. I want to grow. I want to figure this out. If I just give them training, it's wasted dollars. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. I think about a lot of people, a lot of organizations do that. They're like, well, I don't know what to do with this rep or the situation. They haven't thought about a process. They don't have a leader. Like, I'm just going to go throw them at some training and it should make them better. Right. It's like, <laughs> in de- definitely if they don't want to get better, that's not going to do anything at all. They're just literally going to waste your money. You're wasting dollars if they're yeah. not ready. So they have to come to the table with it. And I usually set up like, I, I sit, that's when we talked about like coaching and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So how do you set a quota? It comes through those one-on-ones. It comes through them coming up with those ideas, asking questions, ask, asking them to dig deep, and then literally working with them and having them realize that they need individual development plans. They don't need somebody to sit there and go, here's your annual review that we haven't even said two words to each other. What they need is they need somebody that believes in them. And that will then say, I believe in you, but you have to believe in you, right? And so don't just tell me you're going to do 4 million this year. Tell me how you're going to do that. And why is it only 4 million? Right. So that they dig deeper into themselves and figure that out. Right. And that's part of the one-on-ones and one-on-ones are part of the process. If you don't have somebody in there managing that one-on-one on on a regular basis, you're spinning your heels. That's amazing. (laughs) Oh, no, that's amazing. (laughs) I I know a few people that are actually about to be working with you and getting one-on-ones with you. And I was thinking to myself, like to be a fly on the wall, to hear that conversation where you're caring about someone and saying, look, let's build a plan. You got to have your things you're going to do. And then we're going to match it, match that effort you show. We're going to take good care of you and really try to help develop you as well. Let's see what happens. I can't wait to see what happens. (laughs) Working with, I really can't. I can't wait to see. Um, Really exciting. So, question I want to throw at you. It's a hypothetical. I may or may not have a time machine here in New Hampshire. (laughs) It's possible. May or may not have one. Uh, But let's say I do. You come up, you get some beers. We go check out the time machine. It's a particular kind of time machine though. It goes back in time and you get to meet yourself after the undergrad, after that little 
college degree, right? A couple of days after you, you've gotten out of college, you get to meet that version, that Valerie. And now you get to talk to yourself. It doesn't mess up the universe. It's okay. So what kind of advice, what kind of things would you tell her? I would tell her a little bit like what Jim Collins says is in his BE 2.0. And I can't remember who he was quoting. He had a partner and that partner trusted people all the time and they didn't fail him. And I would just say, it's okay. Trust people. The ones that fail you are going to be minimal. And most of them walk up to the plate and that little 4% of them that dull, oh, well, you learned a life lesson. Don't, don't just believe in people. Be happy with people. Love their cultures. And everything works out in the end. And come what may and love it. Just love it. Just be happy with it. You know, when you're in your 20s, you're so, I got to prove everything. <laughs> Yeah, comparing yourself and uh -huh. all those things. Yeah. And I'm the worst on myself. I actually don't typically, I compare my worst self against the best of everybody else's self. Always. Right. Right. And I, it's magical because to me, people are magical. I love what they can do. You know, I, I, I can't remember. Were you saying that you, in one thing, you were talking about helicopters. Did you? Yes. We talked about helicopters. I'm Maybe. Kidding. I don't know. I, I don't know. What, I, tell, I, I, we did a little flight in Atlanta in helicopters a while ago. That was fun. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it was something like you wanted to be able to do it or it was on your bucket list. I can't remember. I'm probably miss. Well, you know, I had one idea about helicopters randomly in the parking lot chatting with some colleagues and then we just made it happen, you know, but it, it was one of those things that, you know, materialized. So when I was living in the Cayman Islands, my husband bought me a helicopter tour and the guy, the guy did, he, he called it surfing the wave. And so as he was flying, he would dip down super fast and get you right over where you could literally see the Eagle Rakes. I'm a scuba diver as well. I love scuba diving. So anyways, as we could see those from the top, the perception was so amazing. And so you were riding this wave and you're swooping up and you're swooping down and, and you're seeing a whole different perspective. And then one night we were on a night dive in Tarpon Alley and you just dropped down and in the Cayman Islands, the water is like an aquarium and it's like 85 degrees. It's so comfortable. And you turn your lights off, you drop down to about 65 feet, you turn your lights off. And you see these big tarpon just glimmering in the full moon. And you can see the full moon up above. Wow. So when, you're do when I was doing this helicopter surfing, I was like, that perspective was so beautiful. And underneath was so beautiful. Right. People are so beautiful, right? There's so many good things about people. So many exciting things about people. So when you were in the parking lot and you got to just, hey, we're going to want on this helicopter, it was just a joy that day probably for you, right? Yeah, absolutely. And don't you do some scary things? I yeah, thought you said you do. What do you yeah, do? Skydiving, you know, mountain climbing. That's it. Skydiving. Yeah. That scares the crap out of me, by the way. Have you, have you done it? 
I have it. My daughter is begging me. She's like, Mom, please. No, you should take her. <laughs> oh, she's already gone. Oh, she's already gone. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's engaged. And my kids oh. are, are, I'm an empty nester. So, oh, congrats. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Isn't that awesome? No. And I get to have them at Christmas time. And, right. uh, and one of them's fiance is going to be there too. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sky, things that just sort of uh, get you present, you know? Yeah. That, that um, get your attention. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> that, that whole dropping, that is one of the few things that I've, I've gone, hmm, I've done a lot of things. That one I could really dive. So you, you've never done it? <laughs> never done it? I've never sk- skydived. Oh, well, see, I'll have to talk you into it because <laughs> it's actually, once you're out, it's fantastic. The The worst part is just the plane ride up because it, you're not instantly at altitude. So to go to 13,000 feet, it takes you, you know, 12, 12, 15 minutes, depending on what kind of plane you're in. So you're just in this plane going like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Am, am I going crazy? Maybe I can talk them into letting me just land with the plane. <laughs> you know? That's what I'd be doing. Yeah, I'll just land with the plane. I have done the, I have done the simulations and I love that. That's like the indoor one? You know? Yeah. It feels the exact same. It really does. Yeah, but you're not falling as I don't know. My dad, I told you we did an upside down loop. He had a he had a trick airplane when I was younger. And I made my friend go first with him in case they died. Yeah. And <laughs> good friend I am, right? Truth comes out. <laughs> and then we were um yeah. And my mom wouldn't let him skydive until until we were all out of the house because she said if you die then i don't have kids to worry yeah and he this was his response to to skydiving casey he said it was the most boring thing he had ever done (laughs) and i was and i he i said why and he said well it's really fun for the first 30 seconds when you're you're free falling as soon as you're like as soon as the parachute goes out I just wanted to go back up and do the free. <laughs> I was just like, it's true. and I told him, I said, you know what? You're crazy. You're crazy. My daughter loved it. She thought it was the best thing. I just yeah. loved it. Maybe you should just do it and surprise them with a video for it. You know? Uh, no, she wants to go with me. <laughs> oh, even better. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I'll be able to do it. So. so are you afraid of the dying part or the falling part? The falling and living part. <laughs> if you actually, if you actually bounce and live, I'd rather die if I hit the ground. Well, you'd definitely die if you hit the ground. Yeah. Uh-oh. No, there's been people who survive it. I know, but they're just not very good at anything, right? They couldn't even, <laughs> couldn't even <laughs> die, die, die. Right? <laughs> fell on the airplane. Come on. No, see, I wasn't worried about the dying because I figured, you know, it wouldn't exist. People would, you know, they'd sue it into oblivion. It's, it wouldn't have a valid you know, company, it wouldn't persist if everyone died all the time. So I'm sure that it's safe. And the FAA, you know, you have two parachutes. There's a lot of training and all that. I just didn't yeah. want to feel that roller coaster feeling. Like I love skydiving, uh-huh. but I hate roller coasters. That sort of like free fall uh-huh. feeling. And then also, um, you know, lack of control. Lack I mean, the roller coaster, of control. Yeah. You're not controlling it at all. Well, with, with skydiving, you don't, you have complete control. You can pull the parachute. Yeah, you're going one direction, but you can control how you move and and all that. You can control if you fall faster or 
faster or less fast and you can maneuver yourself. It's like ice skating in the air. You can just a slight little change of your hand and you'll start turning um, or going up and down and you basically can fly. Um, and so there's that, but I, but you never actually feel like you're falling. So it doesn't feel like you're in a roller coaster because wow. that feeling is, is actually your acceleration to terminal velocity. So if you're already going 120 miles an hour, you don't ever feel the acceleration. So you never feel that sinking feeling. So it's so counterintuitive when you, when you fall out of an airplane, you, you're already going 120 to stay aloft. So all you feel is wind. It just feels like a, the waterbed of air. It doesn't ever feel like that sinking feeling. But when you look at other people going out, you see them drop like a rock, but it never feels like that to you because you never have the acceleration. Uh, I may have to try it then, Casey. Right? It took him a while to talk me even into scuba diving. Well, not even because I'm claustrophobic. Oh, yeah. And people are like, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know if I can do this. And then it turned out to be one of the most wonderful things on the planet, you know. And My thing, though, is there, there's no creatures in the sky. There's no more pterodactyls <laughs> that can swoop out of the sky, grab you, take them to their nest and have their children eat. <laughs> right? There is none of that. It's safe. It's safer up there than underwater where everything looks at you as like a protein snack, you know? Are you, are you a scuba diver? No, no. I don't think they eat me. Are you kidding me? Oh gosh. They don't want to eat you. Yeah, they do. The last person. I'm a tasty morsel. And they're like, they're lining up. Maury Eel, he's, he's giving me the dead eye. The shark's giving me one of the left eyes. They're all looking at me. They're like, I bet you, I bet you taste good, man. I bet you taste like Texas Roadhouse. And I probably do. But, you know, they're, they're looking at it. So skydiving, oh, you're, you're the top okay. of it, you know? I'll have to take you, if you ever want to, you and your wife ever want to go to the Cayman Islands, I will take you to Stingray City because you will fall in love with those critters. <laughs> um, right before they killed Steve Irwin or? You know what? I, honestly, yes, but. You think about the statistic improbability of dying from a stingray. <laughs> Fair enough. That's 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 the math I do with skydiving. I know it's very, very little. Um, yeah, interesting. No, that's cool. I, Cayman Islands, good to know. Can we also visit the bank there too and leave some deposits? That was some foreign <laughs> foreign funds. That'd be nice. Have a have yeah. a Cayman bank account, you know? That'd be kind of interesting. Um, yeah. Well, no, it was it was it was some of the oh it was magical. We had Cuban refugees pull up to our docks and my daughters were little at the time. I was, I was remote schooling them. Believe it or not, in 2004, I was remote schooling them through the state of California. Now, rewind, the iPhone didn't come out until 2007. <laughs> right. So internet's very spotty, but we, anyways, my one daughter, she did her homework in a coconut tree and she's a towhead. So her hair is bright blonde. And so she'd do what we call, it is, it's a thing, Kamani and fishing, where they just have a reel and they off the dock. But anyways, one day Cuban refugees pulled up to our dock and they'd been on the water for four days, what? four days. Now, I don't know if you're nervous to be underwater, being on an ocean in a little ponga for four days, I, 
I, I'll at some other time we'll talk about a trip that I went to on Honduras in the middle of the night with flashlights and trying not to hit a key, getting out to the keys. Oh, geez. And, uh, and then a storm from you know what came in and it was very scary. So the ocean is very, oh, very, yeah. you know, yeah, anyways, it's legit. it's legit. So we, um, Anyways, one of them was very sick. And in the Cayman Islands, they have a zero tolerance policy for any kind of immigration. If you do not speak English, you cannot pass an English test and you don't get um, the right papers. They just ship you back. So they were there within like an hour of these guys showing up. And my kids were running around getting food and clothing and water. And it shaped their lives. It one of them at Christmas time, she's like, Can we run around and try to find people who need food? You know, <laughs> and she would rather donate Christmas presents to food because of the you know, these Cuban refugees. And well, anyways, the the people pulled, uh, immigration pulled up and they gave them 24 hours either to get their boat ready to be seaworthy again and go on or get shipped back to fail. Uh, flown back to Fidel Castro at the time. Yes. So it was a very humbling, I would say extremely humbling experience. Yeah. Uh, so anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. So, well, and I don't I, even know what you asked me that. No, I don't know. But I did have one thought before we go to the next thing, which is I, we will go scuba diving with you as long as we can bring someone expendable that looks tastier <laughs> than I am. You know, <laughs> I can bring someone. We don't really like them, you know, and... And they're just a friend of the family, but they're, man, they look like they're just covered in queso or something. Then they come scuba diving, so they're the target, you know? So here's the thing. You could do your podcast from underwater. <laughs> I could. <laughs> you those helmets where you have the thing? Yeah, you could do. And you could, yeah. And and actually, uh, Stingray City's only, it's in the middle of the ocean, but it's it's on, it's on a sandbar that's like, four feet deep so you just sit in this bathtub water and you could do your podcast from your <laughs> well i'd probably have a drink in my hands and then that like my, my questions will get dumber and dumber like they're already pretty dumb but there's there are new levels of caveman inside me that uh but you could smash the myth oh literally yeah <laughs> literally smash that thing um hey where where can people connect with you how do you want them to reach out um whether it's just to connect professionally or their organization needs a sales leader or what? Like, how do you want them to reach out? So they, you know what? I put my phone number on there, 208-425-7542. And they can text or call that. Um, That's a cell. And you're the first person to share a phone number on this podcast. People have shared email and I've been like, wow, that's that's cool. But... (laughs) Well, it is a business. You just it is a business out. number. <laughs> oh, okay. I was gonna say it's not my personal cell. It's my personal cell business number. So but it's not like billions of people, and we have yeah. like a high percentage of idiots listening to the show. We're gonna be texting you yeah. tonight. But um, okay, so so we got we got the phone number. The email is vc at lodestar ury, and you're gonna say l o d e s t a r u r y. And Lodestar is guiding. It's a guide of Muse, a guide to better processes, guide to the North Star, guiding you to uncover hidden revenue. 
And you are why is exactly what it sounds like. You're the reason why. So we're guiding uh, you. So that's the reason. I like that. I, <laughs> and I had never known that. That is very cool. And my husband always used to call me his lodestar. So it's kind of soul. Yeah, most I got told, oh, that's a terrible name. It needs to be like sales acceleration or something. And it's like, no, I'm a guide. No. I'm a guide and in Lodestar is going to be it. And I I don't need hundreds of thousands of customers. And I will tell you, Casey, I will let people know if I can't help them. And I, I will refer them because I- Walk them over to JCPenney's or- Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I, you know, if they want to call and they just need to have a chat, you know, connect with me on LinkedIn. You know, the, that's also, they can yeah. do that as well. Amazing. Amazing stuff. Thank you so much for coming on here. I, this is, I just had a blast. Well, thanks for having me. This was fun. This yeah. was, I, I was like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Podcasts. Who, who would have thought they can be so fun and you can learn so much and share so many ideas and learn about opera and <laughs> yeah. diving and uh, all these things. But in, for those people listening, if you learn something, and I freaking know you did because I have Two pages of notes front and back <laughs> that uh, I learned something and I know you guys did. So share this with someone else. That's how you're a thought leader. If you share a piece of content with one person, even now you're a thought leader and share it with all 340,000 and you're really a thought. You're now you're an influencer at that point. But either way, get this information in other people's hands. And again, Valerie, awesome, awesome time. Can't wait to chat with you again. Oh, thanks, Casey. It was a lot of fun. I all right, everyone. It. Thanks. This has been another episode of the Hardcore Marketing Show. We will catch you all next time.